吃都不急。Welcome back to Two Nobodies, everyone. Happy New Year! Glad to be back here in 2023. And part two of our conversation with the goat, the goat of mechanical engineering from Waterloo, Brian Cates. Brian, you didn't interrupt me this time. Welcome back to Two Nobodies. I, I was <laughs> yeah, good. You're good. I was, yeah. I was, I was like, don't interrupt him. <laughs> don't interrupt. Him. You're a pro now, man. I wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> itching, itching to do it. No. Uh, happy, happy New Year. Uh, happy to be back. I wanted to keep talking. So. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad. It, it was a fun conversation. It was good getting to know you, and there's still so much more to talk about. So I'm glad uh, I was talking to you uh, offline. And it seems like you kind of like this podcast thing, hey? It was kind of kind of taking yeah, to it. Yeah, <laughs> except you didn't really like your own voice, which is something you just get used to. Honestly, I I'm tired of hearing myself. Yeah, you're not too. supposed to tell everyone. Uh, it's that, a, I think it's but... a normal thing. <laughs> no, it's I'm joking. Thing. I'm joking. It's a totally a normal yeah, thing. Yeah. No, I just heard my voice and I go, oh, but um, like I said, yeah, that's a, that's a normal thing. Once you get one of these, these mics kind of help because it makes it sound just a little bit like a little, a little sexier. Yeah, I got to get the pro, the pro set up like Rupesh yeah, here. Yeah, it'll, it'll get better. Um, I really loved our conversation. I mean, we went through a lot of stuff and maybe we can just remind folks what we talked about. So, I mean, we, you talked about, um, we talked about just some men's health things, right? Like of of uh the balding that you had gone through and just like yeah well it's, i think we were sort of catching yeah. up so yeah um you know i felt like uh yeah we sort of went all, all over the place a bit we we talked about balding mm-hmm. um then what was that sort of led into Talk about your thyroid issue and your thyroid cancer that you yeah. you went through and um what life was like without uh without a thyroid and quality of life there and then um, transitioned into just, you know, where we had left off of, which was like you and I, which was coming out of high school, going through university and then, you know, um, going through that engineering program and, and how hard you worked. And, and we kind of just left it there, which was like, okay, you know, uh, you're done with the engineering program. And then you traveled a bit, you talked a little bit about that. And then, um, we're like, all right, we got to save this for part two. So, so what happens after you finish engineering at Waterloo? Um, so, yeah, I think that's actually the most interesting part mm-hmm. of what my story was and like what, what might be interesting to, to hear yeah, about for yeah. other people. Yeah. It was just because, and I think it, I, I wanted to go back to when I, when I heard part one of what we talked about, I feel like the, the main the thing about engineering, or something that I actually found interesting, uh, like hearing the way even you ask the question or the way people think about some of these things, it's just, there's this idea of success, mm. right? And I think that's that's been sort of like the uh, center question that I've been yeah. trying to answer. And the, one of the reasons why I went on this crazy sort of detour and and in this direction that people wouldn't have expected from maybe where I was going mm-hmm. before. Um, and so um, I think, I think like the, the question of success, what, why do, why do we think that success, if you start going down an academic direction, mm-hmm. it seems like success becomes like the, um, the same as 
sorry, what am I trying to say here? It success becomes that traditional sort of mm. thing. So it's like you're a doctor, a lawyer, something about <laughs> some sort of title at the end, um, some kind of yeah. title, and and I think I sort of rebel against that mm. kind of stuff. I think. I, I don't know when that rebellion really in me really started, but I think there's like a, a certain part of me was capable, I guess you could say capable of becoming any one of some of these mm-hmm. titles. Sure, sure. <laughs> I think I was capable of becoming a mm-hmm. doctor. If I really, mm-hmm. if I really sort of pushed myself, I, I was because I was good totally. at science yeah. and yeah. math. It's that would have been possible. Um, I actually did try, and I can talk about that a bit later as part of the story, mm. but, you know, it's it's becoming these things. Like, I could have become a doctor if I really tried, um, and if I went through all the time. Um, I could have, you know, become an accountant mm. if I really wanted to go that route. I could have become uh, maybe not a lawyer. I don't know <laughs> if I'm lawyer material. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> um, you know... Certain personality things stop you from doing certain For career sure. careers. Um, so you know anything where I had to be re- really loud and like a, like a salesman. Mm. Actually, I could have been a good technical salesperson. What is? <laughs> I almost got. What does that mean? Like, like selling um, selling devices. Like actually, biomedical devices. Oh, okay. I almost ended up as a really? biomedical device salesperson, oh. and and that's like. A lot of those, a lot of those jobs that start off, you you go into a certain field. Mm-hmm. Like I, I actually ended up going into biomedical engineering after. Um, but you know, certain fields like that, you think it's going to be very technical, mm-hmm. but then in the end, they need a lot of these companies need sales. Oh, okay. So that's that's where you end up going. And uh, actually, I think I think I am. I I sort of learned about myself that I am very suited to. A technical sales job. I'm not necessarily, and I never thought of myself as a salesman. Mm. But as I as I got older, I sort of realized, oh, actually, like knowing a lot about things helps you become a good salesperson. Yeah. Uh, but that's sort of besides the point here. But I think you know all those roles. If I had become one of those things, if I had become a salesperson in the end, people still would have gone, oh, wow, he's successful, right. or yeah, you know, like yeah. something something like that. And I. And it, it's interesting to me that because I started to go down this sort of like trades route, um, and I don't I don't necessarily call myself a tradesperson mm. now. Um, it it is somewhat. It's probably the most accurate definition. Because what would be like, the trade? I guess if I were to put a title, the trade would be welding, welding now, okay. um, and maybe you know motorcycle mechanic. Okay. Um, I'm I'm not really an automotive mechanic, mm. but um, you know those. Again, I'm I'm sort of I've become a jack of all trades. I've become yeah. a lot of different things, and that's part of what I'm talking about too. Is that success is sort of uh, defined so um, still so traditionally? I find I, I I don't know what your what your take on that is. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that. Um... I think the expectation when you uh, start to go into those last years of high school and entering university is that 
the goal is to get some sort of title, whatever that it might be, and, and some sort of definitive path, right? Like I think you're always working towards sort of one path. There's no thought of like, oh, I could eventually do something else or, you know, it's like success is defined about this long career in one area. And I think I think more and more yeah. we're seeing that, you know, we're not all built to do just one thing, right? Like we're, and yeah. and um, and I think success is, is more seen now as far as, how you went through that journey, right? And the resilience you may have shown along the way and all those sort of things. And I think that that's starting to emerge a little bit more, but I would say, I would agree. I think that the time that when you and I were going through university and perhaps maybe, I don't know if that's the students still feel that kind of pressure, but it's like, okay, what's that path going to be? It's got to be as clear as possible. And, and, you know, you want to have maybe some sort of good compensation or some sort of title. And yeah. I think, I think that narrow view uh, still exists, but I, 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 I do feel like there is an emerging definition of success that is starting to, to unravel. Mm-hmm. So sorry, but I yeah. agree. I agree with that too. I think, I think I'm, I'm happy to see where things yeah. are going that, I think we did grow up still in a time when it was still quite mm. traditional. I think it is changing. I think the the ability for people to do different types of jobs now, even on their mm-hmm. own, like the ability to be an entrepreneur on your own has just gone through the roof. Like totally. there, there's so many job titles that didn't exist before and, and that people can totally do on their own without without going to interviews, without trying to prove themselves to anyone really they can just start and do something that they feel passionate about and just just go for it and can be quite successful do you think that's kind of like a bit of a a generational thing like uh, um you know i would imagine that with our parents and obviously their parents like it was still about security right like it's still about making sure that you had um a secure job that you could provide for your family that things were kind of stable and you know, hopefully then the next generation, which would be us, that we could then uh, launch off of that and be a little bit more innovative and riskier or whatever. And then our kids, you know, hopefully can build off of that. You think it's maybe a little bit yeah, of that? Yeah, I feel like it's it keeps going in that yeah. direction. It might come back to you eventually mm-hmm. where, you know, it gets more traditional yeah. and more yeah. traditional. Uh, but yeah, no, I think that's definitely what it was. Um, I think our parents were even, I mean, it makes sense when you look yeah. back. Like when I think of my grandparents, so... My grandparents um, came to Canada when they were pretty mm. young and they, so they were immigrants mm. and they had to, um, I think my great grandfather had a butcher shop okay. and then my grandfather worked as a butcher mm. and, and then he sort of became his own, you know, he became an entrepreneur in his own mm. way, but it was limited to what he was able to do at that time and what was sort of um like he ended up becoming a caterer so he had restaurants he actually had a couple of restaurants okay. and he had a pretty successful catering business um so but he was in the food industry and then um so so like I actually got along really well with him when I was growing up because um he didn't have that academic background but something about um the fact that he was sort of more of an entrepreneur more of a uh businessman i don't know i guess i didn't realize it until later in life that i have some of the same drive that that's pretty cool and it's sort of like it's sort of interesting to see later Mm -hmm. um but uh i think i think my like our grandparents generation having gone through like the struggle of running a butcher shop trying to start your own business 
that kind of stuff. I think they saw value in, you know, our parents getting traditional, you know, the better, the better degrees. They saw, okay, well, it was hard for me because I didn't have that academic background. Um, we had to work really hard uh, in, in the food business, which is like a, a difficult so place to be. Yeah. It's never, yeah. it's not easy yeah. work. It's just long mm. hours, stressful, hard mm. work, right? So I think they saw, at least in my family, but I think this is what happened in general, is like they saw the value of traditional jobs. And then so our parents ended up getting traditional jobs. Um, And then I think from there, uh, you know, it's sort of come, it's sort of come back. It's like every generation tries to make sure that their kids don't do the things Mm -hmm, that they mm -hmm, had to mm -hmm. do. (laughs) So my grandfathers, you know, didn't want my, my parents to, to struggle. Mm -hmm. So he tried to push them, like tried to push my mom. I'm thinking of my mom's dad Mm -hmm. for the most part. He tried to push my mom and my dad, I guess, and was supportive of my dad becoming a doctor. Mm -hmm. So my dad became a doctor. Mm -hmm. My mom became a nurse. Mm -hmm. Um, traditional fields, mm. they didn't have to struggle that much once they set up their careers. Um, and my dad came from a not not that well-off family, mm. so my dad really had to work hard uh, when he was younger. And you know, uh, he wasn't used to having that much yeah. money. So by the time he became a doctor, I think it was it was valuable. He could see that, and it was for whatever reason, you know, just going through those careers made sense. Um, I don't think he, he necessarily, I don't think that would have been the career for him had he had the mentality that he could do other things the freedom that it was okay so that, to do. If he, yeah, yeah, if he was, if he had the freedom that we had, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Like, I think he would have possibly done something yeah, else. Interesting. Um, but that's the way it went yeah. anyway. So I think for our generation, it was sort of, I remember my parents were pretty open about it. They was, it was they're sort of like, just, you know, follow your passion, mm-hmm. which is, um, it happened to be that my passion at the time aligned with, like, I loved math. Mm-hmm. So like that, that kind of worked with what was supposed to be a traditional field. But, um, I guess, I guess my point is, yeah, no, I definitely think it's a gener- generational yeah. thing. And I think we're, we're part of that where, at least for me, I saw that having the opportunity and feeling like it was okay to be uh, an artist or something else um, led to, uh, yeah, a different idea of success. But did, did you still feel, it sounds like you still ha- felt some pressure and maybe it was more internal pressure of like uh, just attaching yourself to that traditional def- definition of success then? Yeah, I think it was still ingrained yeah, in me. Yeah, some, yeah. So, so despite what I'm saying that we had these, this freedom, yeah. it, somehow for me, it still ended up, I guess, because I was good at science and math. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I felt pressure to succeed for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and succeed was still, in my mind, just as it was defined for right. them. So um, I don't know if I'm going in circles no, no, here. No, saying, no, no. Uh, but I think, yeah, anyway, so success is still sort of, growing up for, I, I think it was the same for you, right? 
it was sort of yeah, I mean, a I, bit of a traditional it, for sure. idea. I mean, the main thing I think would be stability and security. I mean, I study kinesiology yeah. and my dad's like, what the heck is that thing? And, and, and yeah. like people still don't know what kinesiology is. And, and, um, once he saw there was some sort of connection to health and I sort of said, yes, I will become a good doctor sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he never really never had that pressure of me being a doctor, but when I told him that sports medicine was something I might want to get into or whatever, he's like, okay, I see that. And then of course, like he finally gets bought in and I graduate with a master's in kinesiology. I'm like, I'm going into government now. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay. Oh so, yeah, that's yeah. right. So I guess, he, yeah, you've been through yeah. your own ups and yeah. downs and changes yeah. and different things. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'll, so, so I think that's sort of an interesting thing about success. But then, so to, to, to lead back to what happened after I graduated from Waterloo. Mm. Um, so I think I, because I was doing these co-op jobs, I think I got a taste of what engineering would be like. Yeah. And I didn't like what I mm. saw. <laughs> and, you know, I've had people tell me after, like at, at this age, that, oh, you probably would have liked it um, or you possibly would have liked it but you, you maybe just got the wrong jobs. Oh. Like you ended up in just the sp specifically the wrong places and they were pretty dry jobs. <laughs> that sort of, I mean, it was a combination of, I had trouble getting engineering jobs for the first year really? that I was there because some, some of the uh, kids that I, that I was in the, like in, in the same class, yeah. uh, some of them had more experience mm. already. I didn't even understand that at the time, but I come from a family that knew nothing about engineering. Mm -hmm. I was the only one that was actually pursuing mm -hmm. this. But a lot of people in engineering went into engineering because their dad was an engineer, mm -hmm. or their mom was an engineer, or they're, you know, they come from that background, or they had even like automotive experience, mm -hmm. you know, like in mechanical engineering, a lot of people were interested in it because they loved cars. Um, so, you know, I found... I loved cars, but I didn't know a lot about them. I had no uh, introduction to like auto mechanics, working on cars. I was not hands-on at all. And that was, it was mostly because it was a f totally foreign world to me. I didn't have family members that were in it. I didn't have people showing me how to work on cars as I was a kid. And um, it was intimidating to me. Like I, you know, even using some of those tools, like I, I, I just didn't do it. So I, I just, I was, I remember being intimidated by mm. that, but I knew that I loved cars <laughs> and I loved mechanical things. And it, it just like anything that goes fast to me was uh, exciting yeah. and like figuring out the science behind how to make something move without human input, you know, yeah. like, um, without actually expending energy yourself. Right. Uh, that was I think what led to me going into mechanical engineering mm -hmm. in the first place. But so a lot of the other students would have already, you know, worked with their dad and in, in a shop or, you know, whatever it was. So I found those, those guys were getting, uh, jobs a lot easier. Was it also maybe uh, like connections to you? Do you know if that had anything to play with it? Yeah. yeah it's, it's yeah. all, it's yeah. all those yeah. things. It's just like, you know, certain, whatever, whatever it is, there's tons of reasons why. Right. But I didn't even fully understand it. I was so naive. Like I didn't, and my parents, I think were naive about it too. So, you know, trying to talk about why I was struggling to find jobs. Uh, 
I don't think my parents had the right answers either. Um, but it was clearly, um, you know, like there was, I remember Toyota. I remember like Ford. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I actually remember one of my uh, applications to work for Ford. Right. <laughs> and I think in the application I wrote like, I'd be so humbled to work for you. Guys. It was like, it was right. it was like the the worst. Yeah, yeah. It was so naive. It was just like a, an innocent kid yeah. asking for please yeah. give <laughs> give me a job here, uh, and they would have looked at it and got like what the, yeah. the hell is this? Yeah. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, of course. By yeah, the way? absolutely. <laughs> the fuck yeah, is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> throw it yeah. away. Um. So. Yeah, like I, I just. I remember trying to, I wanted to work for Toyota. I wanted to try to work for mm-hmm. Ford. I wanted to, um, anything else. There were like automation mm-hmm. companies. They were doing like, I remember I was interested in mechatronics at mm-hmm. the time. And um, there were companies that were doing, you know, like automation related devices for cars or, you know, um, even other I, other vehicle related things. Yeah. But I think... I think I was vehicles were always on my mm. mind and I could never get those jobs because it's just like for those reasons. Um, and then so what happened is I ended up getting pigeon held mm. kind of like from the start. Mm-hmm. And that's just because my grades were good. That's what I had to rely on. My grades were good. The first job I got, I didn't even have to. Um, I didn't even have to interview. Okay. So what happened is Atomic Energy Canada, mm. which is the the company that designs nuclear reactors mm. for Canada um, and other parts of the world too, actually. Um, they they have some of the smartest people working there, obviously. Um, they basically just picked my resume out of a... Or they, or they came directly to Waterloo and said, who's your top guy? Like, give me mm. him. And that was basically it. They just... They, I didn't have to interview mm. They just said, okay, we're taking him because he's the top guy. Yeah. And I didn't have any other uh, offers. I didn't even, I think I maybe had one other mm-hmm. interview. I don't even remember. And it would have been, I think at one point I got an interview with um, Nanticoke, which was like like a coal coal power. Oh, okay. Remember there was still coal power oh, back well, in? There's still some we there's still coal power here in Alberta. So, Is yeah. there? Yeah. I haven't been keeping yeah. up on on that but nanticoke's shut down no, as far as as far as i know there's no yeah. more coal yeah. in ontario yeah no there isn't but um but anyway so that one it's, it's either i worked in coal right. or nuclear yeah. power yeah. and actually you know even at the time i was concerned about climate change and mm. um i didn't want to work for a coal plant that's for sure um so anyway nuclear power was yeah kind of interesting to me at the time but I got I got pigeon held, so I worked for nuclear. I worked for Atomic Energy Canada. Mm. I think that was actually my second job because I think the first job I had to get. I, I ended up working at my mom's company, okay. <laughs> the company my mom worked for, which was a vaccine company. Okay. So um, I ended up just doing like web development type work. It was just like some kind of technical mm. work that I could do. But uh, all these jobs was were the office environment was always like pretty stale. Mm -hmm. It was always like, that's another thing that's changed so much Mm -hmm. in the last few years. Right. But like, I, I was still part of that generation by doing these co-op jobs. I was in these stale work environments. So it was like office space, the movie, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) 
that movie office space spoke to yeah, me yeah <laughs> when i was you know i don't remember when it came out but i remember feeling exactly like the main character i forget his name mm. in that but you know where he's like cutting like filleting a fish in in yeah. his cubicle yeah. uh, you know like <laughs> and he eventually becomes a construction worker. So I think, you know, if you were wondering what happened to me, it's basically you just have just to watch that movie Office Space. That's, your life. that's all it takes. So um, the, the office environments were just horrible. I remember not having enough work. They legitimately were not giving me much work to do. And the work would be something that I would finish really quick mm. and then I would have nothing else mm. to do. Um I remember one of my later co-op terms, so probably when I was 21 or so, um, like third, fourth year university, um, I went to a company called uh, Nuclear Safety Solutions, mm -hmm. which is like a consulting company that works for Atomic Energy Canada okay. and then works for all the other uh, reactors in the country. So. I think mostly in Ontario, yeah. actually, sorry. But um, so that was actually downtown Toronto. So I was living, I think I was living with my parents again mm -hmm. at the time and commuting downtown every day. And, um, you know, some of that was an interesting work experience. I actually ended up getting a, an award for the best work report for that term. Oh, okay. But I didn't feel, I didn't feel like I was working that hard. Mm. I, I didn't. Like, to me, it, it, I don't think it was just me. I think the work was, even compared to what we were doing in school, some of the some of the work we were doing in school was really difficult. Like, mm. even though I did well, I wouldn't say it was easy stuff. Mm. I would have to work really hard. I would have to study really hard. But then it, we would go to some of these jobs, and the type of work you were doing was always very different. Even at Atomic, or even at Nuclear Safety Solutions, I was inputting data into a computer program and the and the computer program would do the rest mm. and it was basically just checking some i think it was like stress values and piping okay piping systems okay. uh not to get into too much detail <laughs> but um yeah it was like i would literally just put some numbers of some drawings into some uh into some computer program and and i would be like this is it this is all you want me to do like we we learned all this crazy stuff in school. Mm. You don't want mm. me to do any of that. Mm. <laughs> I think, and they'd be like, I think that's a challenge. I feel like, so it sounds like the experience has really um, had an effect on it on sort of your outlook maybe of engineering. Uh, but like, I, I also think that I remember my first internship uh, into into government, and I kind of wondered, you know, people were great. It was a great team to work you think for. The same thing? Yeah, and I was like, oh. I don't know if my skills are fully being utilized and I don't feel, I feel yeah. like I could get the work done fairly simple and, and I, I didn't always, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, an issue with my team or my boss or anything like that, but it was, yeah, it no, just wasn't the work. Like the, great, the planning but... wasn't done properly. Like, and I think that's an issue sometimes that happens with recruitment is like, Oh, we'll just get this intern, this young person in as a body. But I don't know if people really yeah. think about the experience that they should be giving to this young person, how, what kind of impact that has on their outlook of the field and, and all that sort of thing. Like, I don't think there's that kind of thought. I think this people just think, Oh, there's some cheap labor here. We'll just get somebody to do this, this shitty task. And, and, uh, no, exactly. So, yeah. 
No, and that and that's exactly like in hindsight, I go back and I go, okay, the jobs would have been interesting eventually, yeah. right? Excuse me, uh, the jobs would have been interest interesting eventually, but I was young, right? Like I was, I I had jobs in the like between eight being eighteen and twenty two, twenty three, um, and like, yeah, it it. It would have been better if maybe, you know, the first job was like that, the second job was like that. But by the time I did like my fifth co-op turn or sixth co-op, I think there were six of them. Mm. By the time I did my last one, you know, it would have been in, it would have been good if I actually felt, oh, now now I'm actually doing yeah, something. Yeah. If there's some sort of progression, I guess, in in yeah. what the rules look like, yeah. I I actually I actually worked in Fort McMurray as well. That was one of my turns. Yeah, I remember that. And to be honest, I think as ironic as it is, because I did not like what was going on. I didn't know anything about what Fort McMurray mm. was. You know, this was 2004 when I worked. So in you Fort didn't McMurray, know about the oil so sands really that much? I didn't know. I don't know. Like, I don't think anyone yeah. in Ontario yeah. was thinking about the oil yeah. sands in 2004. Yeah. Um, I didn't hear about mm -hmm. it. I just saw this job opportunity. Move to Alberta for four right. months. Right. And like go to northern Alberta and work in a mine. And I thought, well, that'll be a cool experience. Yeah. It's different at least. Yeah. Like yeah. that's something totally different from what I'm doing here, right? Um, and so when I went out there, I mean, it's interesting. Like Fort McMurray actually was probably my best co-op term mm. because at least I got exposed to the hands-on side of mm. things. And in a funny way, maybe part of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing now mm. is because I went there. Mm. Um, but I, if I if I hadn't, so I worked in the mine there. Was it a, like a surface mine, or was it like I, I must have been? It's a surface yeah, mine, yeah. so it's a strip mine. Yeah. That's how the oil sands works there. I guess well, there's, it there's was in, working there mainly. Yeah, there's other there's types in situ right? now, right? So yeah, that's yeah. right. So they were just starting to try to do okay. the in situ stuff. Okay. Um, but it was still strip mining for the most part. Mm. That's where I was located, um, at Syncrude. Oh, actually. I've been to those mines. They're massive. Have you yeah, been to I've them? Been to yeah, it. they're, they're insane. Yeah. They're, they're crazy. Yeah. So, uh, this was 2004. I think it was like, it was, uh, business was booming there. Um, and they were starting to ramp up mm. a lot of projects. So, but I, I got actually positioned in the actual mine. Mm. So I was, I was like on the edge of the strip mine. Mm. So it was like I was I was in a building that was basically right next to just piles of dirt. Mm. And um uh like a lot of my peers that went to Fort McMurray didn't even didn't even get that close to that side of it, okay. right? As engineers. Yeah. So I was in an office that had I think three engineers mm. and like twenty uh tradespeople. Okay. So and we worked with the tradespeople very closely. Mm. And that's actually one thing that I, I would say, despite it being one of the, the work that was going on there was some of the worst for the environment mm. that I've ever been a part mm. of. <laughs> um, it was the best work environment I ever worked in. And, it, and that was the, and they even made fun of me for being this like kid from Toronto yeah. and even like being ridiculed the most out of any job that I've ever gone to. I still enjoyed it the yeah. most. 
And so because it was a small ratio of engineers to a big ratio of tradespeople, they were responsible for um, non-destructive testing of uh, a lot of the steel that was cladding parts in the mine. So like there would be like a hopper that collects sand Mm. and on the hopper, there would be these steel plates. And so the, the people I worked with were it's non-destructive like maintenance team. So they would go around and actually just measure the thickness of the steel plates. Cause as the, as the sand came into these hoppers, it would wear them down to almost nothing. Right. And this oil sand is very abrasive. Mm. So it's like, it's so hard on every, all the equipment that's there, everything that's going on there gets like worn down. Things just don't last. Mm. Right. So it was an interesting from that perspective to see, okay, so I remember I had one coworker um, and I still remember to this day, just like he would, you know, so I had, I had some uh, work that I was supposed to be doing as an engineer. So my boss would give me the same boring tasks that I was doing back in Toronto um, that I didn't want to do. And then the, the, this guy, Chris, I think was his name. He would come into my office and say, you know, he he was loud, you know, like the engineers were the quiet guys Mm -hmm. and the, the trades people were like the loud, you know, in your face, extroverted people. Yeah. Right. So this guy would like, you know, throw open the door and be like, Brian, what are you doing right now? Let's go. And <laughs> it was fun. Yeah. Like, that's well, a lot of I, those guys are also think... from Newfoundland too, right? Like they all come from, yeah, they're, yeah. they're hilarious. So yeah, yeah, they were, they were funny. Yeah. You know, there was always telling jokes and there, it was just like, I think part of me remembered, Oh, this is what living is like. Okay. Like I'm at work and I actually don't hate it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't hate it because I was getting to see things. Mm. I was actually involved in things like, and I think it was just that, that simple hands-on element. And, and this brings me back to what, you know, like, I think I'm, as I'm talking, I realize I could talk to you about this stuff for like five hours. (laughs) So I'm going to have to be careful not not to talk too much. But um, if I'm passionate about like potentially later in my life, changing anything about, uh, you know, leaving a legacy or something um, on top of the, the artistic and creative work I feel like I'm doing now. um, It would be to try to help change engineering school Mm. (laughs) because I think, I think having that, and I think this is done in other countries, but um, having a system where you get to experience the hands-on side as well as the technical side Mm. is just huge. It's a game changer. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so I got to see welders there. Um, I got to see, you know, these non-destructive testing methods and, and I just, I got to drive a truck in the mine. I got like to the, see what the was big going ass, on. The big ass truck? Not a, not a big yeah, ass okay. truck. No, no, no. What I mean is I, like, I drove a pickup truck <laughs> okay. to different spots, okay. but I got to actually be involved, you know, like yeah, I was yeah. given, I was given, uh, I can't imagine uh, at some of these other jobs, like being given that much responsibility mm. to say, you know, you can go drive a truck to some, you know, in, in dangerous dirt mm-hmm. roads in this mine with no, you know, it's a bit more dangerous than like what you're used to in a white collar jo- uh, job. Right. 
I don't know, working at heights, like going up yeah. in in a boom or something. And I, I don't want to I don't want to say that this is um, entirely. Like, I don't want to generalize this, but I remember when when I did move to Alberta, um, some a senior leader in, in government had told me he said because he'd worked in Ontario, different parts of the world. He's like, there is an attitude in Alberta about like if you got good ideas or you're willing to put yourself out there, like there's this acceptance of like innovation and risk or just giving people like the extra opportunity and, and that sort of thing. Like, I think there is that sort of, um, I don't know how to describe it, but, um, when you, when you're talking about this, like getting these opportunities to, to try these different things like that, that is something that I have experienced here in Alberta, even in like in the field that I'm in. Right. So, um, Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about that. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, there's all sorts of. Obviously, in Canada, we have like the, the West Coast versus East Coast mm. thing. We have you know Alberta versus Ontario, mm-hmm. and of course, none of the guys in in that office, um, or in that uh, in that shop, uh, would let me hear the end of it. Mm. Being from Ontario, <laughs> they would make inappropriate, you know, so certain comments about Ontario that I won't, I won't even get into Mm. because it's, you know, that's not the focus of this, but, um, there, so there is that, there is that side of like, yeah, I think I'm definitely more politically, uh, center or left, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and a lot of the guys are quite right wing Mm -hmm. where I was, where I was working there. Um, so, you know, there's some differences there, but, um, in terms of uh, just, yeah, getting exposed to that type mm-hmm. of work. I think that that had a huge impact on me. And so when I came back to uh, to Toronto, I was actually, so I was actually also the only guy that didn't go back to work there for years and years. Okay. So out of my peers, everyone that from Waterloo that went there, uh, I think there were six or seven guys I worked we we were in a, like a student village, mm. so that was also a nice part of it. I I got to live next to some students, and it's all uh, dorms we had sort of our right? own. Well, it was actually townhouses. Oh, okay. They put us up in townhouses. Like this is what I mean. It was just for for a younger person. It was a good. Yeah, that, that's the kind of experience I was expecting yeah. from co op, yeah. right? Yeah. And here it is. I only got it from this one job where I didn't believe in the work that was going yeah. on. So I yeah. didn't want to go back. Yeah. I didn't want to go back because I I felt. This is horrible. Mm. Like, just the scale of operations there, what was going on, mm. it was just, it blew my mind mm. in a way where I thought, okay, back in Ontario, we're, you know, watching movies about, you know, Al Gore talk about climate mm. change. And everyone's thinking, you know, I, I felt like people didn't even know how, even remotely, how bad it actually is mm. out there. <laughs> I felt felt like I wanted to show everyone the oil sands mm-hmm. and see. Oh, you think climate change is bad? Mm-hmm. Like, check this out. Mm-hmm. And then it started coming out anyway, and people started talking about what was going on there. I think mm-hmm. a few years after I was there. So, um, wasn't there weren't there a few document documentaries about what oh, was yeah. going on? The, yeah, there's 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 been so many. I mean, I think James Cameron came out here here with Leo yeah. DiCaprio, and they did a whole yeah. thing and. So, um, you know, and, and again, maybe not to go too much into that right now, but in terms of how it affected me, I, the positive was still just, I saw what 
what engineering could be like mm -hmm. where you're actually involved in both sides, which is very important. And if you can be that, like you're supposed to be the guy that translates the technical information to to the tradespeople in a way that's meaningful mm -hmm. and, 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 and not to ridicule them, not to feel better than them mm -hmm. because you've done more schooling than them in a certain way. I think that's another thing that I've really come to appreciate about trades is um, there, you know, the system has, de has declared a hierarchy where tradespeople are lower than academics for whatever reason. And um, the kinds of understanding, it's, it's definitely a different way that the brain works. Yeah. I feel like academic takes a certain way of thinking. Um, trades, trades work can be fairly uh, monotonous and just systematic, uh, you know, systematic yeah. and, and simpler in that, yep. in that way. But depending on what you're doing, and especially from the perspective of engineering, trades, trades and engineering shouldn't be thought of as a different thing because that makes sense. the experience that comes from, from doing things, it's like, you know, uh, I don't know. You can't you can't, you can't learn from just books. That's that's the bottom line. Yeah. This is this is just like it's not it's not a difficult uh, concept what I'm talking about. But for whatever reason, it just doesn't get doesn't get implemented. Um, except for I've heard I think certain Scandinavian countries are are doing that more. Mm. I think maybe in Germany even they do it more. From what I've heard, maybe in, a, in most of Europe they might be doing it. But um, for whatever reason, North America, they don't do it. Hmm. They don't do this nearly as much. So anyway, um, so I think when I came back, I sort of, you know, combined with what I was talking about last time I talked to you, uh, my mental health not being in the best state, right, yeah. in, you know, being surrounded by only men, um, just feeling like I couldn't uh, feel like a, a normal young person. Mm-hmm. And I felt too isolated. Um, I think that made that put me down a path where I was like, okay, I can't go back to a stale office anymore. And I tried. Yeah. I actually, so I went, I went traveling for half a year. I tried to get work in Australia. Actually, I did. I tried to do a, a working holiday in Australia, but luckily I had enough money saved up from the co-op jobs mm -hmm. um, that. Uh, I didn't have to work there. Mm -hmm. I could, I did sort of like a backpacking trip and part of me was trying to do, take advantage of the working holiday visa. But another part of me, as soon as I got there and tried to get different jobs, I actually tried to get like bartending jobs. I tried to get <laughs> like whatever yeah, I could, yeah. but I was not a very good bartender to say the least. Um, just not social enough. Mm. Um, not extroverted enough. And, um, so then I tried to get like some engineering jobs in Sydney mm. and um, I remember going to some interviews, but I was, I was living, I was living at a hostels, uh, you know, for like 20 bucks a night. Yeah. I didn't even have like a suit. I don't think at the time, I think I borrowed some French guy's suit. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, hey, hey man, I got an interview. You want to give me your suit? Uh. And, <laughs> but like, I started uh I started getting back to normal mentally in Australia mm. because I was backpacking and I started meeting people honestly I felt like I started connecting with 
foreigner is way better than I connected with my peers in Canada. Mm. So for whatever reason, I think I felt like a lot of the Europeans I was meeting were uh, were more worldly. They were more mm-hmm. they were more interesting to me, not as judgmental, not as I don't, I don't know how to say it. But well, I, just, I feel like if you're meeting people at a hostel, though, like that's they probably share a similar mentality. Yeah, right? and it's not just maybe it's not just that they're you know European, but um, you know, uh, just in general, yeah. I think yeah. having that yeah, like more open mindedness mm-hmm. and just meeting people that were willing to sort of push themselves push themselves out of their comfort mm-hmm. zone mm-hmm. Um, and travel and meet new people all the time. I think that experience of meeting people, new people every day, got me back into a place where I was finally, I felt alive. I've never felt so alive as when I went to Australia and stopped doing, trying to get jobs and just traveled and just met people. Mm -hmm. And that was like the part of engineering I was missing where just uh, talking to people Mm -hmm. again, uh, meeting whatever. You know, uh, trying new things. I I learned how to surf. I remember uh, I was actually really good at it. Like, Mm. I I went to some surf camp, and I was one of the best at the surf camp. And I I was like, wow. You know, like, I thought of myself as this academic guy who wasn't that uh, into, like, I was somewhat athletic, but I sort of rediscovered my love for some of these, like, outdoorsy sports. Mm -hmm. And I was like, like, why wasn't I doing this more? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Water, like, I, I, I used to ski, too. And mm. I was like, why wasn't I skiing more? Why wasn't I doing stuff in, in Canada that I could have done? So it was just like this reconnecting with, with like, being a normal, yeah. social, young human. Mm. <laughs> so, and, and that changed everything. And when I got back, I actually tried to get jobs again here. I... I got a job at another nuclear place. <laughs> uh, you know, it was again, I didn't know, I didn't know yeah. what types of jobs to get. So I sort of gave it a shot. Um, I got a job at this company called Babcock and Wilcox, which makes nuclear reactors as well. Mm. Um, and then, you know, th- the environment there again, I felt like I went to the interview and I, I made it clear. I had come back all refreshed. You know, I had a tan and I was all like, right. I was all motivated uh, confident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was super confident. Yeah. I came back and I remember having an interview with an HR woman and and I was just like shooting the shit with her and it felt like a comfortable conversation. I was like, man, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. She seems great. Yeah. This place seems great. Yeah. And when I actually, <laughs> it was like this having this normal person, like the HR woman was like the type of person I would have met traveling Mm. i felt like she was a normal social person uh and then you know she introduced me to the engineers and it was back to where i was when i was just dry as anything it's like hi brian yeah yeah what do you know about science yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm like no take me out of here like a bad movie yeah 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 so i lasted four months before i quit yeah then I struggled to find out what to do with myself for a while. I worked for my dad for like four months, essentially not doing that much. And um, 
then I, you know, I kept trying to rationalize my way through career choices. Yeah. So <laughs> the next thing I, I, I thought, oh, well, I, w- I wasn't getting enough creative work. So that was the problem. So what's creative, but still somewhat related to engineering. So I found this uh, program called uh, biomedical clinical, I think it was clinical biomedical engineering, I guess. Okay. At U of T, it was a master's program. Um, and it, it was uh, billed as this program that was way more hands-on mm-hmm. that would allow you to actually, because you, you, you had these, um, I guess there was technically an internship. Mm-hmm. And there was there was still a thesis involved, but there was also you got to see surgeries. So you actually got to go into a number of different surgeries and see what types of tools they needed in in these different procedures. And um, it it seemed hands on, you know, which is what you're really looking for, right? So yeah, yeah. and then and then the idea of like designing, you know, I thought okay, nuclear reactor work was like way too large scale. I didn't feel like, I felt like I was more of a cog in a wheel mm-hmm. because there's such huge complicated projects that you only get to work on, you know, like at, at the nuclear jobs, I would work on like a bolt. <laughs> it would be like a manhole cover bolt. I remember, I think this is one <laughs> of the things I did at Babcock and Wilcox. Yeah. It's like, cause they made essentially pressure vessels. Right. They, they make boilers. Um, even as a welder now, now that I, I'm a, I'm a really good mm-hmm. welder now, mm-hmm. I would have been fascinated with Babcock and Wilcox, the company mm-hmm. I worked for where they, they, they did these pressure vessels. I probably would have been way more fascinated now, or even as a welding inspector or something, I could get all excited and, and nerdy and, and talk forever about like inspecting welds. Yeah. <laughs> but, but back then I didn't know about welding, yeah. so I wasn't interested in it. Um, but anyway, so I, so I went to this biomedical, I, I applied for the program, got in cause my grades were still good from, from before. Mm. And I remember coming back from this, you know, the, the couple of years off and having traveled, I could already notice a huge difference between me and the other students in the class. I felt like I had a much more relaxed, like more worldly approach to everything and worldly. more I I think I just having seen some of the world yeah. and been outside of this bubble of whatever hmm. whatever the system was here. Yeah. I just felt like you know, I I don't know if that sound sounded like <laughs> arrogance. No, no, no. I just, just just I think it was worldly just because I got to see even to talk to other people from mm-hmm. other countries and every day meet someone different from a different part of the world. Yeah, and that I makes think sense. That just made me a more relaxed and open person and just aware of this is not the only way to do things. This is not the only place where this type of stuff is happening. And maybe it was also in the back of my head, I was thinking of all the other types of things one could do uh, for a career. Yeah. You know, it didn't have to be this dry all the time. It didn't have to be whatever, whatever it was, but I think I just came into the room, you know, like feeling like more of a laid back surfer guy. Yeah. Whereas, you know, everyone there was still, um, I don't know. I, I felt like, 
but just in that grind, you know, right? it's sort of, of... in the grind. But yeah. I, I would also like think of it like, you know, I was watching the Big Bang Theory uh, last night. Mm. I, I didn't used to love that show, but you know, like I there's certain definitely certain elements of my personality. I I I can be that like intense nerd guy, mm. uh, but I felt like everyone in the program was still just that intense nerd person that couldn't get out of their their shell as yeah much. that makes sense yeah um and so anyway i remember starting to feel like okay these these jobs are still not really for me mm. and i didn't i didn't like that intensity i didn't like that that one-sidedness to it where it was just you're just a brain you're like you're just you're just the smart guy here that's what you do you're not here to be social. You're not here to be anything else. You're just a smart guy. Yeah. And I was getting sick of that again. And and just um, going through that program, I think, it, again, it felt dry, more dry than I mm-hmm. expected. Um, seeing the surgeries were interesting for sure. I started working at Sunnybrook Hospital. I actually started working on MRI research. Okay. But... Um, the environment there was incredibly intense mm. and and I just felt like it was missing this. It still didn't feel like where I wanted to be mm-hmm. for whatever reason. So um, I guess that which brings me to, um, again, I think, I, th- I know I'm, I'm, talking a lot here i don't know how how are we for time here no we're, we're okay, i, I right? mean i, I want to i do want to it sounds like we're getting to the the we're getting to the of meat of it here to, to motor bricks and, and yeah root engineering yeah so 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 this is so when i worked at sunnybrook hospital that's actually really where things started to change where i started to realize okay um i actually started riding motorcycles i guess i started riding motorcycles when i came back from my trip to australia um did you ride there I I rode very uh, like a, a very small amount there. Okay. Um because I I think there was like a tour mm. in northern Australia where you got to um uh ride a little scooter in the shape of a chopper. Okay. And uh, it was automatic so yeah. it wasn't manual like most most bikes are, but it was um you, you got to like it was a tour of the countryside and you you would get to see kangaroo in the wild. Mm. So he, this guy would just like, it was called Scooteroo, I think. <laughs> he would take us on these little mini choppers and we'd just ride through the countryside oh. and like spot kangaroos. And it was amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I think they went like 80 kilometers an hour yeah. max. Yeah. But I remember, you know, we didn't have any protective gear on or anything yeah. like that. I think we maybe had a helmet. Yeah. But I remember, like, going 80 kilometers an hour on this tiny little chopper scooter thing and being like, wow, this is... This is freedom. This, this is freedom. This is for me. Yeah. This is freedom. Yeah. Like, spotting kangaroos. This yeah. is amazing. Um, so I came back, took the, took the motorcycle course right away, um, started working my way up into bigger and bigger bikes. And by the time I got... But by the time I was working at uh, Sunnybrook Hospital, so I was in this, w- what I would define the opposite of riding motorcycles, which is like this intense math and science work mm. at a hospital. Uh, and then after work, I would ride my motorcycle and I felt 
felt like the me that I was experiencing when I was in Australia. Mm. That that was like the freedom, freedom Brian, and then there's like engineering Brian. Engineering um, Brian, yeah. Yeah, and there was just this like diff- yeah, huge difference between mm-hmm. who I wanted to be. And I remember it was like, I was still a nerd, like I, I, I was very much, and I am yeah. very much a, a nerdy guy. Uh, but I think, you know, you can even see it more back then. I remember looking at pictures of myself and I like, uh, you know, I, I looked like everyone else. I looked right. like a, a nerdy engineering student. Um, but I started to imagine what I wanted to be. Yeah. And, and I think I had a vision for what, who I wanted to become. And that's really what started to change things. Mm. And when I, when I thought of who I wanted to become, I basically, like, if I look at myself now, I think I've actually achieved that, which is interesting. But um, I started to notice uh, people were working on motorcycles and creating custom bikes that weren't the, the normal of what we were used to seeing in the 2000s. So I don't know if you remember mm-hmm. much, because I don't know if you were into... I don't think you're into motorcycles. No, I don't know anything really, but yeah. So, um, you know, back in the 2000s, I don't know if you remember like Jesse James. There was Orange County. Oh, I I used to watch OCC. There were these shows, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Orange County Choppers. So, you remember that show? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That was the thing back then, right? That was the custom bike thing. Yes. I didn't even think. I watched the show too, but I didn't think much about it until because I didn't even ride motorcycles Mm. yet. Um. But once I started riding, I sort of remember, I remembered, oh, I, I started looking at some of those episodes of like Orange County Choppers and some of that stuff. And mm-hmm. I remember, you know, sort of scoffing at it, like thinking, man, there was, those, those bikes were so flashy. Yeah. Those were in bad taste, in, oh, in okay. my opinion, okay. at the time. Because it it's all about like bling, mm. you know, rather than actual artistic, uh, to me anyway. This, right. This, this is, you know, it's somewhat insulting to people that, that like that kind of style, yeah. but yeah. I, I don't like it. Mm. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's nice at all. I think mm. it's flashy and, and stupid. Can I acknowledge the, the work that, that goes into some of that, uh, those bikes, especially now after I've done some of the work myself? Absolutely. I think it mm. takes an amazing skill to do what they were doing. Right. But just not the design, uh, the, the, the design and the look of it, not, not my thing, but anyway, what I started to see, I think in the in the 2010s, like maybe 20, maybe it might have been like around 2010, I started noticing um, there were these people turning vintage bikes from the 70s, like vintage Hondas, okay. mainly, into what they were calling cafe racers. Which uh, cafe racer is like? I think it was uh, in the UK in like post-war time. Uh, they would turn these triumphs into like race bikes, but people okay. would modify it themselves. So um, they would put like a, uh, I think they would modify like the handlebars would be lower. They would mm. be, make it more like a like a racing bike than mm-hmm. it was was out of the factory. So there was a whole culture that came out of that, and I guess I was never aware of this, but in like you know the two, late two thousands, early twenty tens. Um, people started focusing instead of on the, the flashy chopper thing, some of these builder people 
started focusing again more on um, these cafe racer inspired bikes. And once I started seeing them, I didn't even realize what I didn't, I didn't know where this was coming from. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize the history of it or anything like that, but I saw these bikes and a lot of people have seen, have gone through the same process as me. And when they've seen these bikes, they just, they went crazy over them, right? Like n- n- nothing that was being produced uh, out of the factories like Kawasaki, Suzuki, whatever, uh, Triumph. Mm-hmm. Actually, Triumph was one of the companies that started producing one of these factory, again, factory styled, like vintage cafe racer oh, okay. bikes. Yeah. So um, once I started seeing this, I sort of got interested in seeing if I could modify my bikes. And that's really where the idea sort of popped into my head because some of this was very grassroots. It was just guys in their garage Mm. doing what seemed like minimal modification work. But I sort of went down this rabbit hole and just, I think there was a show on TV called Cafe Racer TV. And um, it wasn't like mainstream. It wasn't quite the same as like OCC was Mm -hmm. back then, but it was sort of, if you were interested in it, um, it was coming out, I think, some of these, like, men's magazines, like, mm. you know, some of these, like, magazines that showcase watches and things. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a, web, there's a website called Uncrate. Okay. Um, and they would showcase, like, fancy cars, luxury mm. items. So, totally, I was not, I'm not a materialistic guy, but, mm. like, I started coming across these, these cool bikes in these sort of materialistic magazines and yeah, things yeah, like that. Yeah. Um. And I actually read a book by this guy, Matthew Crawford. Uh, it was called Shop Class as Soulcraft. Okay. I don't know if you've heard of this book. No. It was It was a bestseller for a while. Hmm. Um, and the book is about, it's written by a philosopher. I think he's a professor in philosophy. Uh, but he's also a motorcycle mechanic. Hmm. And so he wrote this book about how the value of uh, working with your hands. Basically, what I've what I've talked about with my mm-hmm. experiences in the oil sands, um, but um, so he talked about it, and he talked about it from a very academic, from a very philosophical perspective, sort of like uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, mm. that book as well. But this was more of a, I guess that book's more uh, fiction. This is a nonfiction. This is just a discussion about. Um, working with your hands and specifically he was a motorcycle mechanic. So he talked a lot about, uh, working on vintage motorcycles and the, the skill that's involved, uh, the thought process that goes into yeah. it and how it's actually, and the art that goes into, I think he talks a lot about plumbing and, and electrical work. Cause he was like, a an electrician for a while as well. Mm. So anyway, the book, the book's a really interesting read. It, it, I think more people need to start talking about this, this sort of like the value of hands-on work. But I basically dove in headfirst and started learning how to work on my bike. I think I sold, I had a super sport bike at the time. I sold that one because I thought, okay, I'll get something that's a little bit more, uh, something that I could actually start to learn and work on, something that I'm not afraid to cut cut okay. into. 
I think I and remember I, seeing that that sport bike for the first time. Like I think the oh, yeah. last time I saw you would have been on there, and I just remember being so surprised that man, this guy's riding that. That I had. It was well, a green one. It yeah, was a yeah. Kawasaki yeah, like, yeah, yeah, ZX6R, yeah. Think, which is a really fast Kawasaki bike. Like green is their color. It's super flashy. <laughs> well, keep in mind. Here's the contrast I have, right? Because the last time I saw you drive something would have been your mom's station wagon. And here I see you driving your this Kawasaki super speed bike. I'm like, what the fuck happened? So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, I got I got into cars too in in university. I had a Honda Prelude. Oh yeah, the Prelude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I did so, see that. Yeah, you, I think you did see that. Yeah. One. yeah. So I I was getting into faster, cool yeah. cars and things yeah. like that. Um, but um, when I so I I sold the Kawasaki. I got this the Suzuki SV650, which is not a vintage bike that's being used to turn into cafe racers by most people uh but it was i had seen some other guy on a forum in toronto actually uh modify it to look like more of an what they call a naked bike which is just a, a motorcycle that's been stripped of basically all it's it's sort of been made to look like uh, a ducati monster which is ducati ducati sort of started that i think they're the ones that really made the naked bike what it is okay um so like what, I tried, what is that what sorry what is um tell me more about naked like a naked bike like what is that so a, a, a naked bike they they also call it a street fighter sometimes okay. um uh it's a style of bike that you take a sport bike and you strip all the plastic off of it oh. so you take like usually they have fairings which are the the plastic covering in the front um, so they'll take the fairings off. They'll take, sometimes they'll modify the, the, the plastic mm -hmm. in the, in the rear as well. Um, and it just becomes literally a frame with two wheels mm -hmm. and there's no wind protection. There's nothing there. There's just a headlight attached to the, to the front forks. Mm -hmm. So that's the naked style. I think that was, that was being sold more in Europe. Like, okay. uh, more of the European bikes were naked bikes, but it never really took off as much in the early 2000s mm. um, in North America. Like North America was always either you ride a fully fared like plastic sport bike. Yeah. Or you ride a Harley, mm. a Harley Davidson. <laughs> that was the thing, right? So, um, yeah, at the time, that, that was another part of it. It was this genre like outside of the norm. It was not a... It was not a super sport Kawasaki and it was not a, not a Harley Davidson cruiser. So um, not as many people were as into those bikes at the time. I started noticing people doing this type of work. And I, I basically, I started working out of my parents' garage and I, I set a goal, a pretty ambitious goal to turn that SV650 into a, a naked bike. Hmm. And, uh, the first, I think the first set of modifications I did were pretty basic, but you know, I, I was so bad at, uh, wrenching or, you know, uh, working on, working on motorcycles at the time. Mm. I was really bad at working on cars. I was just horrible. Like I didn't know how to use tools. I didn't know you have to get to, uh, you have to get to a point where you feel things. So you have to know mm -hmm. how tight, even something as simple as how tight to tighten a bolt. Mm -hmm. You know, there are specs on that. You can use yeah. torque specs. Torque wrenches and stuff. But 
uh, most mechanics, you know, you don't use a torque wrench for every single bolt mm -hmm. you you work with. And I didn't even have a good feel for that. You know, mm -hmm. I remember over tightening things, mm -hmm. stripping things, breaking bolts, um, just getting it, just, just all the, the learning curve started at zero, right? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. yeah. But I got it to a point where I still had the vision and I still was determined to, to, to do this. And I thought it was a good application of my engineering background. Mm -hmm. So, um, I went through it by the time that first winter, I think, I think it was a, like a winter project. I'd done very minimal stuff. So I'd, I'd put handlebars on, uh, I had like changed the, the wiring in the front. I had done a lot of electrical work actually to shorten the wiring harness mm. and redo it. I changed some of the electrical work. I think I put a different headlight on, um, but, you know, compared to where I am now, it was very minor modifications. Mm. Um, and I wanted to do a bit of metal work, but I was just starting to get into that. So I think I think around the same time I took a welding course at George Brown and I actually found I had a knack for welding mm. that sort of started to trend translate to the motorcycle stuff. Mm -hmm. I worked at a machine shop at Sunnybrook Hospital. So I started to learn a little bit of machining. I, again, very beginner to machining, but I started to just dip my toe into these different areas that I had access to at Waterloo. Like I had, yeah. there was a machine shop at Waterloo, but I was, I, I didn't know, mm. I, I didn't feel like I had the time. So focused on the school, right? So, yeah. And I think yeah. we all were like, yeah. unless you already had worked in a machine shop and you had it, or, you know, you wanted to motor modify your motorcycle. You know, like in in hindsight, the best time to start modifying a motorcycle would have been when I was at Waterloo mm -hmm. in engineering because I mm -hmm. would have had access to the machine shop there. I, there probably was welding equipment mm -hmm. there. I just didn't even know about it. But I could have gone like heavy if that's what I mean. If the program was a hands-on program, I would have been all in on these. Like I would have been building everything when I was mm -hmm. 20. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it wasn't. So anyway, I went into all this. A year goes by. I start to get more ambitious with, with what I'm doing. And then I went to work for a mechanic, actually. Mm. <laughs> I went to work with an auto mechanic. That sort of fell through. Um, and yeah, that fell through because he, did, he didn't have a lot of patience for my for where I was, <laughs> right. I, I wasn't that skilled. Right. Yeah, I was yeah. at the learning phase. Yeah, I think yeah. he thought he had an impression from talking to me that I'd be much more skilled mm. and, and I wasn't. So when I showed up and I think he, he quickly got frustrated with me, understandably. Um, and so that didn't work out. Um, but I kept at it. I kept at it on my own. And then I eventually got to the point where I, I had I had some money saved up and instead of instead of stressing about making sure that I was I guess I made a conscious decision at that point. I said mm. I'm gonna put all my efforts into I didn't like what I was doing at, at Sunnybrook Hospital. I was still a research a researcher doing MRI research there. I didn't like where that was going. I thought of, I actually applied to, to go to med school at one point. <laughs> this is like, there's a whole wow. bunch of years there. Yeah. This is in the early 2010s. Yeah. 
where basically I think 20 by 2013, I think it was, I was working on the motorcycles more and things just, I, I still wasn't happy with where things were going, but, um, I was so excited to, to dive more and more and more and more into learning how to weld, mm-hmm. learning how to create things, uh, for the, for, um, to, to build a custom motorcycle. And I, I think as I started seeing that, that community and these builders in the States and in Europe as well, uh, I had a clear vision for what I wanted to learn how to do. So there were these bikes that were coming out that were, you know, involved a certain level of fabrication skill. So it was, it was clear to me, to, I, I had something in front of me, like a goal, right? Yeah. To say, okay, I want to build the same things that these guys are building. So I have to, I had a list of things I had to get good at. And the main one was welding but also metalworking in general, which isn't just welding, like knowing how to use a grinder, uh, knowing how to machine things, knowing how to cut mm-hmm. things. Um, and, and even measuring and lining everything up in a certain way was like a huge part of uh, what I had to learn. Yeah. So I think I had this clear goal. I had some money and I, I basically said to myself, okay, I'm going to try to live frugally, but, uh, I'm going to give this a shot. And I really just jumped off the deep end and went all in on learning how to do everything. And I basically didn't make much money at all for a few years there. Mm. Um, but just relying uh, more on your savings for the, for that time then. Yeah. And I, and that, that's like, I was very lucky. I had, I had come into some money Mm. just sort of through, um, you know, some inheritance Mm. basically. So, but you know, where <laughs> in hindsight, it might, it might've been good to put that towards a house or something like that. Mm. But instead I basically funded my own education mm. and, um, went through like five, five painstaking years <laughs> mm. of like failure after failure, trying to build this into something. Um, and, and I think you don't realize it when you're doing it, but, um, every little trial and error thing that that might take you, you know, a lot longer than it would take someone who, who learned when they were younger who, or who apprenticed with someone else. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, t- it took me that much longer. It, it, it was that much harder to get, like I ended up having falling outs with people. I, cause I kept trying to work with people like that mechanic sort mm-hmm. of, you know, kicked me out. Then I tried to work with uh, s- some peers, like people my own age, um, at my own that that weren't also professionals mm-hmm. in in the field. So um, I worked with a couple guys. That we we got this garage on Dufferin, and uh, we sort of that had a falling out as well because I was I felt like I was the only guy that was going there that was. 100% committed to mm. trying to learn this stuff. But I was also probably difficult to to work with. Um you know, in hindsight I can see that. <laughs> um but it you know, it's just I I went through a struggle of trying to really like being so focused on wanting to learn this stuff but not having anyone that could really help me help yeah. me get there. I didn't feel like I was I wasn't skilled enough to apprentice with anyone. I didn't want to go back to school for that. Mm. 
I got some, I, I had done the, the George Brown courses in welding, but I felt like I had done as much as I could do in the school there. I, I had to get real experience. But rather than work in a rough welding shop, which I didn't feel like was the best fit for me, um, I decided to go this route where I just I yeah. just learned myself, and that was just sort of the road I had to take, I guess, given so, given what what was available to me. So when when does this the current company you have, Motorbricks? When does that get created? Um, so Motorbricks, I think I actually created it pretty early on after. I think when I started working out of that small garage with like okay. it, it ended up being three other guys. I I started mm. to work on this idea of motorbricks, and it was I I was modifying my first vintage bike. Mm. Um, I started I started the I actually started a blog first <laughs> where I was talking about like tra- transitioning careers because mm. um, it was relevant to me at the time that I was a highly academic person trying to do trades work. Yeah. Um, And I wrote a blog about that. Uh, Didn't really go anywhere like most blogs do. Uh, But it got me sort of trying to showcase what I was doing. And it got me not afraid to, to be honest about what I was going through, like Mm. all the, the, the struggles of what I was, what I was doing. Right. And so I think I I created Motorbricks at that time, even as I was making my first vintage bike. And, uh, yeah, the first, the first bike came out of that shop. And, and I mean, it wasn't anything that special, but I, I think I was, I, I, at that point already was starting to show myself as, a, a member of the motorcycle builder community, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. pretty small. There weren't that many people actually building anything here. Yeah, and a lot of people wanted to, and especially in the in the mid two twenty tens, like I, I don't think it was still in if it's in its infancy. And I was one of the few people actually going all in on it mm-hmm. because most people wouldn't quit their day job. Sure. And, and and take that risk, this. right? Yeah. And it's yeah. it's it's one of those things that if you're you know, it's actually difficult to have all the right combination of skills to be able to do that work yourself. Mm. Most people don't aren't a good welder, a good metal worker, a good uh electrician, a good mechanic, uh and also good at marketing and good at like <laughs> there's like most people aren't good at I'm yeah. I'm not good at marketing. So but it required like becoming known for for someone that builds bikes i didn't even know where this was gonna go yeah and i and i guess i just trusted that it would go somewhere Mm. uh but i think it was at that time after i built the first bike again it wasn't incredibly impressive but i started to get a little bit of people noticing oh this guy's doing metal work on motorcycles and i started to get people actually asking me to do modifications but then the more interesting thing too was I started to get people asking me to do furniture. And that's Just, where That's interesting. Well, because I had a friend and again this is like there's all these sides to this story, but I had a friend who was an uh industrial designer who designed furniture. Oh. And he actually asked me originally when I first started getting into this, he he asked me to or we were just talking and and I ended up helping him uh, do some metal work for uh, his, he started a small furniture company 
which he 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 started it. He he closed it down pretty quick because he he decided that for him entrepreneurship wasn't wasn't for him. So mm-hmm. he went and worked for uh, another company, but um, he got me actually. He's the one that got me into um, like building furniture, doing metalwork for for architectural stuff, mm. and. I kind of liked it, I guess, because I liked welding. So, um, as I, it, it sort of happened in tandem, right? Like, as I was trying to build motorcycles more, I kept wanting to learn new ways of doing things in metalwork, yeah. and then that ended up helping my furniture work as well. To the point where I was, I started getting noticed for having good metalwork, mm. and that's that happened sort of organically, where. Um, I remember being asked by the landlord of that garage to start making stuff for his house. Like he, <laughs> he was just like, he came by the garage one day. He's like, what are you doing? And then he's like, do you think you could do that for me? <laughs> That's so interesting yeah. how that, that sort of opportunity just arise, right? Like, yeah. 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 And, and, and like, I, I seem to distinctly remember it's hard to redefine the image of yourself. Mm. <laughs> like one key thing is I, my uh, self identity was tied to being the smart guy, mm-hmm. right? The, the academic math guy, math and science. And for years it had been that, that my, my identity was tied to being that, that person that all of a sudden I was forcing myself to, to be a completely different identity in a in a in a sense right because what i realize is people's people's views of you especially in first impressions um are pretty simple right <laughs> like people don't go oh wow he's a guy who's welding who's also really good at math and is capable of designing all sorts of interesting engineering things instead they just go oh that guy's welding that guy's making something uh, with his hands, right? Yeah. He must. That must be his identity. That's who he is. And I think because I had quit my job and and I was focused a hundred percent on that, um, it's sort of like I remember having a bit of an identity crisis at that point where I was trying to build all these bikes and I was getting recognition for all sorts of new things to me, like being somewhat artistic. I was getting recognition for. Mm-hmm. I was getting recognition for welding really well. I was getting recognition for making these motorcycles starting started like it was starting to come out that I was I had an attention to detail attention to detail that no one else had that I was creating bikes in a way and and even to this day I haven't done anything revolutionary in custom the custom bike world like mm-hmm. compared to some of the stuff that's out there I've I've had bikes published in online magazines that are the top top in the world but you know, I still consider what I'm doing. It's not nearly at the level of some of the top mm-hmm. guys, but I, the goal is still to get there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I guess my identity was becoming more and more like on the inside. I felt like I'm no, I'm nowhere near like sure. what, what some of these other bike builders are, are at. But on the outside, people were going, you're a bike builder and yeah. I'm yeah. going to give you work and, I want, I want to see what you can do. And it just sort of took off from there. And, and over the last few years from there, it changed until eventually I, I am where I am today, which is, um, 
I eventually got a, a shop to do metal work and yeah. So, so, um, maybe just to wrap this up before we get into the final two questions, if, yeah. how does, how does it work in terms of if somebody wants a custom bike, like, do they, um, can you build something from scratch or is it only just like, like what's the process look like, I guess? Um, so, so yeah, uh, usually what I do is, um, I, I'm modifying bikes, right? So I'm okay. not building, I'm generally okay. not building things from completely from scratch. Okay. Um, and that's, that's one of the goals is to eventually build everything from scratch except for the engine. But mm. for now I'm still, for the most part, I'll take a frame. So it'll be from, usually it's a seventies, seventies bike of some kind. That's been the, mm. the trend. Most people are into that. could be a newer bike as well, mm. but I'll take a seventies bike like a Honda or these days I'm doing a lot of BMWs from that era. Mm. Uh, and I'll take the, the, the whole bike, I strip it down. Um, and I generally will cut the back half of the frame completely off, make a new one from scratch out of tubing, um, weld that on, create my own seat from scratch, uh, with a seat pan foam. I shape the foam myself Mm. Then I get it upholstered. I have people to do certain types. I don't do my own upholstery. So Mm. I have someone who does that. Um, and then, and then I do all the other modifications. So I'll add tabs, cut off tabs where I don't want them to be. I'll add tabs where I want to, you know, add like foot pegs. I might have different types of foot pegs. Mm. I might have different uh, components that attach to the engine, um, whatever it is. And then sometimes I'll modify the wheels too. So put a completely different type of wheel, re-spoke it, um, stuff like that. And uh, at the end, you know, sometimes you're putting modern components. So the suspension can be completely different. The suspension mounts can be completely from scratch. Um, and at the end of it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also trying to get into sheet metal more. So Mm. eventually I'd like to be able to make my own gas tank. Um, I've started to get into making some body work out of sheet metal. Mm. So aluminum or steel and, and then, um, from there yeah that's generally you know i think the style and what i've ended up gravitating towards is uh it's like a modern vintage style so yeah it might have an led headlight on it it might have mm. sort of modern components usually the electrical electrical system has been totally redone so sometimes you can take a key fob and just tap it there's a company that makes a reader so that you can just tap a key fob to start to start your bike so it's sort of these like modern touches to things yeah. and the idea is to make sort of a sleek uh, design that's like, I think an industrial designer would be proud of, you know, like yeah. not just something flashy, not just something, you know, with, you know, I think that OCC style was more like, let's see how many things we can cram onto this. But, uh, it's, I mean, it's all for TV know? too, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the idea with a lot of what's going on these days with a lot of builders and with what what I like to do is making things look as sleek as possible and, yeah. and minimal. It's it's all about minimal. So it's minimal. about yeah. removing as many things as possible and hiding, yeah. hiding Love all it. the things that are necessary. Yeah. Um, do you think you'll work with electric engines at some point or electric motors, I should say? Uh, yeah, definitely. So that's also that's something that's becoming more popular slowly. Uh, yeah. some of the, some of the companies are starting to build electric motorcycles and, um, there's definitely some 
characteristics of the electric motors that are even more insane in terms of power. I think I think they're some of those motors are incredibly powerful. So uh, you know, I'm not tied to I have no not tied to the gas engine or anything like that. You know, like I'm not one of these purists that's like yeah. it's gotta be gas engine or nothing. Yeah. Um yeah. I just happen to work on mostly gas engines because yeah. it's what's out there. <laughs> it's yeah. and I mean I like the sound of them. You know, yeah. there's there's that whole thing. But do you do you get any requests for anyone who's I know you're you're not you're starting you're gonna start to get into the engine side of things, but um, do you get any requests for anyone who's like, hey, I want to, I'd love to retrofit my bike for it to be essentially be an e-motorcycle? Um, yeah, I haven't gotten that yet, but mm. I think it's coming. I think for sure, because that's coming for cars. Like there, there's a couple of yeah. uh, places in Alberta that, that were they'll retrofit cars. Yeah, so yeah, I imagine that's going to come for motorcycles too. Oh, hundred percent. I think it's already slowing. It's like it's bubbling up <laughs> yeah. out, of, out of the surface. Yeah, like it's starting to show up. I think people yeah. are starting to. I know I've seen some. I've been to some of these bike shows. Um, one of them in Texas, actually. Mm. I, I seem to remember when I was there in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called the hand built show. And there was, mm. there were a couple of electric bike retrofits. There was one mm. actually same kind of BMW that I end up working on a lot. There was one that some guy had put a electric motor in a, oh, a vintage okay. BMW. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, should we move to our final two questions here? Yeah, definitely. All right. So first question is, uh, I gave you time about this one now. Yeah. Um, first question is, dead or alive, <laughs> uh, who are five people you'd want to have uh, supper with? Yes. So um, I've thought about this a lot. I've come up with probably 10 or 20 different names. Um, just five. Just but five. I will try to focus in on just five. Yeah. I think I think one is the obvious one that like I would imagine a lot of people would say, and that's Einstein. Mm, I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, definitely him. Do you want an explanation, or do you want to? You just... can if you want. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think Einstein needs an explanation. Yeah. Um, so interesting enough, I was trying to relate uh, some of the some of these answers to, you know, uh, I guess what I'm interested in and mm. some of the things. But it, it's funny because some of the people that I've that I could mention are people that I could actually, they're, they're actually, it's realistic that I might meet some of these people, I guess. It's realistic that I might talk talk to some of these people. But, um, I guess this, the second guy I would say is that, is that author, Matthew Crawford, who wrote the book, uh, shop classes, Soulcraft. Um, Mm. and I just, I just think, uh, yeah, he, he, that book kind of changed my life. So, that for for me that was the one that you be, said he'd be an interesting with person hands? to talk to yeah yeah, yeah he was yeah, the, he yeah. was the guy that uh that wrote the book about that so yeah um that would be a second one mm. um i think a third one third one would be elon musk mm. um again I, I i don't love everything about elon musk <laughs> i think he's obviously a, a uh, character um but i i would be interested in just you know you know just talking to him because he's, he's all the work he's done absolutely uh so that's the third mm-hmm. um another one 
that actually came to mind. And this is an interesting one for me. I think most people wouldn't expect me to say this, but I, I actually would say Warren Buffett. <laughs> okay. And um, I've actually gotten more interested in the stock market and investing in the mm-hmm. last few years. Mm-hmm. So this is this seems totally off topic mm. for, for me, but um, I'm actually, I'm trying to use... <laughs> Uh, investing as a way to facilitate my my career actually <laughs> mm. so i'm i've gotten way more interested in finance in general and and yeah. investing and so um he's one of the top top guys of course in that. yeah so elon musk and warren buffett i don't think get along with each other so that's an interesting dinner table you got already oh so. Oh, is is the idea that they'll all be at the same? No, no, no. Yeah, actually, you could have individual <laughs> ones. But I'm just saying, if you had those at the same table, I'm just saying, Elon Musk and Buffett apparently don't like each other. So. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Um. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and the the fifth would be uh, probably Barack Obama. Hmm. I I just think he's uh, he's just an amazing person. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, all around amazing person. Uh, so definitely would like to talk to him. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to, you don't have to convince me on that one. He's yeah. on my, <laughs> yeah. my five for sure. So, uh, uh yeah, yeah. No, very, very cool. Five. So you think you'd have them individually or together? Uh, I think it would be a weird dinner table. I think that would be a very weird. So well, like actually, individual. you know, like Elon Musk, Warren Buffett and Obama would like, realistically could be at the same table (laughs) yeah Yeah, for sure they probably have been um other than that matthew crawford is like a lot smaller scale than these other guys uh i think you could have them all together i think it'd be be a good conversation yeah but he could be there i don't think yeah i don't think that would be a problem (laughs) yeah yeah very cool all right last question besides the circle of life what do you know for sure um yeah this was the one that apparently you asked me and i probably zoned out at some point and somehow did not remember that you'd asked me this question (laughs) (laughs) um besides the circle of life what do i know for sure okay so this is a weird answer but it's just one thing that came to my mind on the spot because Mm. i didn't i didn't really think about this much until now but um, uh, I feel like I know for sure that uh, the climate climate change is a huge problem <laughs> on Earth. That's one of the things I feel like I know for sure. Yeah, um, and that's been on everyone's mind, I guess, a lot. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that's uh, we had somebody uh, we talked to um, this person from RBC and talked about climate change, and he was just feeling very optimistic that uh, human ingenuity would be able to solve this thing, and he felt like that was something for sure. So, um, I mean, that's an absolute truth, and uh, it's still yeah. interesting that people still discuss how um, talk about the science and all that kind of stuff. Although we were talking about offline, which. Uh, you're you're like oh, what's your views on this? So I was like no no I'm I'm good with I'm good with this and you're like yeah because one time you told me about this documentary yeah. you saw and maybe just for the listeners really quick this I is saw interesting, yeah. yeah back in uh, undergrad I had seen this documentary it was talking about the uh, the global the great climate change hoax or the great global warming hoax oh, right and I I think I had just seen 
inconvenient truth. And I was like, oh yeah, this is, wow, this is amazing to know. And then I seen this thing and I was like, oh It man. sort of like went against every, everything that 100%. you had just learned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it was just, because it talked about, um, it talked about the sun's influence on global warming and, and all this kind of stuff. And I yeah. was like, oh man, people are being duped. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. This, this is actually, this is like the biggest lie and, and yeah, and, and you wouldn't have been the only person to, no. to think that at that no. time, especially. No. Yeah. Uh, but I think I, I think you you said that you you mentioned something to me. You said, check this documentary out. Oh, did I? I think you did. And I got kind of upset, I think, at the time. Where I that thought, I how could Rupesh like believe this? <laughs> I was I was I was upset. I was just like, no. <laughs> anyway, but like, I think it's it's fair. And like, and there, you know what? There was a part of me that was like, it's it, it tapped into maybe a hope for me. It's like you know, no one wants to believe that climate change is real. It would be mm. way, be way better if it wasn't. Um, so I think it tapped into a small bit of hope for mm. me. But I think I was fairly confident at that time, even that we were we were in trouble. Mm. <laughs> so, but I mean, uh, so much is so much has happened since then as well. Um, yeah, because that would have been yeah. what two thousand six, seven, early, yeah, early mid two thousands, something like that. Yeah, yeah. But no, um, so much just come out. I guess yeah. uh, like climate change is a big part of what your is that a, a big part of your work as well? Uh, not my direct work, but I mean I have worked on climate policy in in the past, and mm-hmm. um, sustainability is is something that um, I'm personally focused on and professionally want to get uh, back into at some point and so yeah it's uh don't need to convince me any any further and even on the podcast too just having people talk about you know we have people talk about regenerative agriculture and the benefits of that on climate and and even just from like climate markets and and lots of different things so um yeah no it's it's definitely important so yeah um brian man i'm enjoyed hearing your full story man i, yeah, I feel I like went, we're all I went, caught we're, i went all, all into it up. so it's good it's <laughs> uh, i think there's uh there are a lot of people who feel we like as we started this conversation off like that they need to have this sort of defined path and and hopefully if people hear this and uh maybe they're struggling with the same kind of dilemma even if it's at the age that we're at right approaching 40 almost right? yeah, yeah um, it really it's matter. okay it's okay it doesn't matter you're right and um, I think what it was so impressive is just that uh, this tinkering kind of mindset that you've had and and this um, desire to have this kind of creative workspace is, I think more and more people want that, right? People don't want to be bound down yeah, to things. And um, even if they're in a routine job, like creativity is something that everybody wants. They want some sort of ownership. and And also just like that other piece of like, you wanting that social connection with people, right? Like it, like you just didn't want that sort of dry work environment. I think there are a lot of people who who want that too, and are probably struggling in this kind of um, post COVID work environment, right? Yeah. Um, Where they're working hybrid or not being able to see their colleagues. I feel like people are wanting that more and more. I don't know. Or maybe it's also pushing people to just become completely antisocial, which would be really sad. No, I don't think um, it's going in that direction. I think people have always wanted to be, you know, you need that, you need that connection. You need to be, yeah. you need to be working with people. I think that's yeah. a huge part. No, nothing happens alone. That's something that I've tried to work on as well is just 
remembering that nothing happens alone as much as I like I have a tendency to do too much or try to do too much on my own yeah but uh being social and and dealing with people is it's just like it's I think you know it makes everyone's lives better um yeah and one last thing I think I've noticed that my story has sort of inspired a lot of people already mm. uh, and I've seen people themselves change careers I've actually witnessed People who I, I, I worked, I actually worked on, on a motorcycle for someone. Um, he was already doing some of the work himself, but he went on to, he's actually got his own shop now. Wow. <laughs> and I remember at some point um, I had talked to him and, and I had sort of encouraged him. I said, you know, he's like, I don't know if I should do this. He's a younger guy. And he was thinking mm -hmm. of thinking of going into like uh i think water services at, at the city of vaughn or something like that mm -hmm. and i said like you know don't feel like obligated to do that um i think i, I noticed that i was an inspiration to him like that that me doing what i was doing gave him the confidence to to go and do it himself and i, I that hasn't been the first like i've i've unknowingly become a bit of a leader <laughs> you know like i don't think of myself as a leader but just my determination to quit my job and focus 100 percent of my efforts on something that is outside my comfort zone at first and and totally different is sort of like when i've talked to people sometimes they're just like holy crap i don't like i would never think of doing that myself and then years later i find out that they've they've done it too so and there's nothing more rewarding and fulfilling than that, I think, right? I yeah. mean, like, you're obviously there's a personal fulfillment of just how your own career and what you're doing and the success you're finding and all that's always fulfilling. But when you have that impression on somebody else, yeah, you have yeah. no real control and, and you've shaped something like so positive, like that, that's huge. So, yeah, so I'm, man, that's great. I feel, I feel good about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Brian, man, thanks for your time. Appreciate yeah, the conversation. Uh, we'll put all your stuff in the show notes and, and where people can reach you and okay. um yeah thanks so much for your time and maybe we'll do this again some other time yeah yeah i feel like there's there's tons of little talks i could have too you know <laughs> at some point so yeah. i know this was a long one but um, yeah yeah all right well, okay thanks for joining us Thank and you. Uh, thanks brian again and we'll talk later okay bye, See you. bye.